Welcome to what promises to be a fascinating discussion about the Walt Disney of bee pitches, that's Roger Corman. Joining us for this discussion is Hadil from Pulp Serial. Welcome, Hadil. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me on again. We look at you as a regular cast member now. Thank you. <laughs> but before we start, on Twitter, we've seen you and your family in Disneyland in California recently. Your timing was excellent, by the way. What rides and shows really impressed you when you were there? Well, we didn't really go to many types of shows or experiences like that this time. But the first ride I was on once we got there was Jungle Cruise because I had never been on it. And I'm very excited for the movie coming out in July. Obviously, we rode on like Indiana Jones and Pirates of the Caribbean and went to Cars Land. As much as I don't really like the Cars movies, that much Cars Land is actually a lot of fun. Oh, we also got to ride uh, Rise of the Resistance, the new Star Wars ride, which was an utter pain in the butt, but probably the best theme park ride I will ever be on. Right. Why a pain? Yeah. So it's not like every other ride there because they want to limit the amount of people that go on, uh, partially because it keeps breaking down. I don't want to spoil it too much because it really is an experience, but you basically, in order to get on the ride, you have to show up at Disneyland at 8 in the morning when they open up and then get into the park and then you have to get on your phone onto a special app in order to try to get a number and then if they call your number throughout the day then you can get in line to get on the ride but they can't guarantee that they're going to get to everybody's number you were there at eight in the morning i assume here how long did you have to wait to even get your number come up on your phone well we got called at like 6.30 or so, like they'd tell you on the app to come to the park. But then by the time we had gotten there at around 7, 7.30, the ride had broken down and a lot of parties who had been called previously were waiting. I don't think we got on the ride till about 9.30, almost 10 o'clock. So you got no chance of going on it twice in one day then, have you? No, you literally can't. It's only one number per party. Without giving the game away on any of that ride whatsoever, I know from my experiences of being in the one in Florida, when you're in the queue, little things are going on around you to keep you entertained. Does that happen on this as well? There's just different things. Like they have different things from Star Wars uh, on display, like the suits they wear and the X-Wings and the weapons and stuff. Like cute little stuff while you're going through the tunnels. There are multiple stages to it, so... There was one point when we thought we were on the ride and then that part ended and it turns out that wasn't the actual ride. They trick you. And then when you experience the actual ride, it's amazing. Oh, oh right. wow. Okay. okay. It's one for you then, Graham. Oh, no, don't say any more. Don't say I just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pumped to go for it and see that. Yeah. Anything else that impressed you while you were there? Most of the things we went to because um, I'd, I'd gone there back in 2017 so a lot of it was just kind of repeat stuff repeating rides and repeating locations really the new things for me personally were Jungle Cruise and uh, Rise of the Resistance everything else was just a re-ride but do you fancy going to one of those Halloween what, uh, events they do in the theme parks or not we did that last year that's not really as much my thing because uh, at that point that very day I was tired because uh, those events usually don't start till about after eight o'clock. Yeah. So we had already been in the park all day, and I just wanted to leave at that point. <laughs> so it, it, that's just personally not my thing. No, I was in one ooh, 94, I think I was in Florida for the Universal one. And now that is tame. It scared the hell out of me, but that's tame compared to what goes on today. Yeah. Neil, 
you wouldn't last five minutes. Right, right. <laughs> I don't go on rides. Uh, you no, know, it's not even the rides that where I was. There was a fog bank of about a quarter of a mile and guys running out of you with chainsaws. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that would have been heaven for you, Jeff. Yeah. Well, you know, if they did it now, you could understand why so many people are buying toilet roll. Um, I move on. So that that sounds incredible. And as I say, your timing was immaculate. Getting out of there just as they shut everything behind you. Like I said uh, before we started recording, it was crazy that before we left for the vacation, this podcast is obviously going to be a little dated in about six months when everyone goes, oh, yeah, that was a weird time in the year. <laughs> but before we left, it was just wash your hands, keep clean. And we were like, OK, we can do that. And then by the time we were driving back, it was, oh, no, the entire world is falling apart in your houses. We're like, oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. I do hope you're right. And in six months time, we'll look back on this and laugh. I'm not enjoying the experience of going through it. <laughs> Let's talk about Roger Corman. The reason I bring up Roger Corman is I noticed you've been championing his work recently. I believe his legacy is now undervalued. I remember a time in the 70s, certainly in the UK, there were like a number of documentaries about him. He was being you know, called one of the great filmmakers in America. He's still with us. He's just about to turn 94. I'm interested in just going through it. But before I start on that, what interests you in Roger Corman, Hadil? I first discovered Roger Corman about a decade ago before streaming really had hit. Obviously, remember from like 2010, 2011, it was still a, a kind of new thing. Not everybody was streaming. So I was still going to the store and buying those box sets for like $5 where it would have like 30 movies in them. But I was younger. I didn't know any better. So I didn't realize a lot of them were like public domain movies and stuff that nobody wanted. That's why they could price them so cheaply. Some of those had, you know, Roger Corn movies on there. So that year I had watched like A Bucket of Blood and The Terror and like a few other Corman flicks. And um, I started, you know, reading up about him and hearing people talk about him and just gaining a lot of interest because what he did was amazing. I mean, a lot of people talk about the musical version, A Little Shop of Horrors, but I feel like not everyone realizes that, you know, the original version that that musical is based on is a Roger Corman movie that he filmed in literally two days because somebody just said they had free studio space um, that they weren't using for two days. And he said, let's make a movie. And they just threw it together. And of course, the famous person that was the uh, in the dentist chair? Yeah, that was Jack Nicholson. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Incredible. It's an odd film. Let's put it like this. It, you, you, you see it's rushed. But it has a quality about it, I to, to be honest. It's been a while since I watched it. I think the last time I watched it was on that DVD set. But yeah, it, it's cute for what it is. It's really funny. Uh, it has definitely its charm to it. I really liked the musical version when I was younger, but I tried watching that recently and it just didn't hit me the same way. I don't know. It's been a bit since I've watched either version. Well, I know they put a DVD release out a few years ago with the original ending back on there. Plant takes over the world. Spoiler. Spoiler alert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd have to watch that one. It's different in the in the other one. But, I mean, he started back in the 50s, didn't he? I mean, this is, again, a great time for certainly some of the, the work that you pick up a deal. These are films that have long been forgotten. You had a lot of producers that started in that time doing, like, B-movie science fiction. Well, it was a great time for B-movies. Mm-hmm. Drive-ins needed content. He started on a film I read earlier today called The Fast and the Furious. Really? If he trademarked that title, just imagine what he could do. (laughs) But you've got films like It Conquered the World, Attack of the Crab Monsters, Machine Gun Kelly with Charles Bronson, which I've seen that one. 
Brain Eaters, Bucket of Blood, which I've seen, and Little Shop of Horrors, which I've seen. In that period, this early period, which works stand out for you, Adil? Okay, so before I get to any of my favorites, I do want to mention, because the reason I started tweeting about Roger Corman is because on Tubi TV, which is a a free uh, ad-based streaming service over here, if I'm correct, you guys are going to get it over there sometime in like April or May. Honestly, one of my favorite streaming services to watch, and most people would probably think I'm weird for liking it, because they do have a lot of older B-movies and a lot of stuff uh, streaming services like Netflix don't carry enough to carry on their services. And so on Tubi TV, I think that's the only place that's streaming right now. It was produced by Shout Factory, this 13-part documentary series where they interview uh, Roger and his wife, Julie Corman, about the movies that they uh, produced ever since, you know, the 50s up until now. He has a million stories, of course. And one of the stories he tells is that, yeah, he did make Fast and the Furious back in the 50s. He actually did trademark that title and back in the early 2000s when Universal wanted to make their series he was more than happy to sell them the rights to that title genius I did not know that oh wow that's genius as far as the favorites definitely one of my favorites is A Bucket of Blood obviously starring Dick Miller yeah uh, I think that's a really wonderful movie in my opinion that's a better version of The Joker than the last Joker movie was I know you guys liked it a little more than I did I really didn't care for that Joker movie but I think the kind of loser wannabe artist story turned to killer i think in my personal opinion has done a little bit better in a bucket of blood again another movie which they filmed in five days and only costed uh fifty thousand dollars so bucket of blood he's like a hippie artist who loses it and he starts killing people and making the deaths art if i'm right it's been a few years since i've seen it yeah he turns them into sculptures like he puts clay over them and pretends like he molded the sculptures yeah Dick Miller is just a wonderful talent, and we'll come back to him shortly. We've spoken about the early period. Let's speak about the period that excites me the most, the Poe film period. Yeah, I've seen all these. My father was a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan. He read all the books, really, really loved them. I think it was in the 1970s, the BBC got hold of a load of these Edgar Allan Poe films and put them on as a series, and I remember sitting down late with my dad and sitting and watching these together. I can still remember. I, of course, I didn't know they were all by the same guy, but yeah, interesting. And he's done all the hard ones. He did The Raven, The House of Usher. The Raven's my favourite. What's your favourite, Hadil? I actually haven't gotten around to watching the Poe ones uh, yet. If I'm correct, those aren't as readily available as some of his other public domain ones. If I'm correct, he did those for another studio. That was before he got his own distribution studio um, in the 1970s. So I, I don't know who still owns the rights to them over here, but they're not they're not available to watch for free at the moment. If I'm correct, I haven't I haven't come across them. But I have seen The Terror, of course, starring Jack Nicholson. Which, if you don't know, Roger Corman absolutely loved to film two or three plus movies on the same exact uh, location because that's just the kind of guy he was. He wanted to maximize the amount of money. So when he was given the amount of money by, I I can't remember what studio was, but whatever studio wanted to make these, you know, Vincent Price, uh, Edgar Allan Poe movies, he said, well, you know, there's going to be like a week in between like filming and leaving 
how about we, Jack, you want to film a movie? And they, you know, ended up having Jack Nicholson and Boris Karloff. And they made The Terror, which, of course, if you've seen it, is a ridiculous mess of a movie <laughs> that doesn't make any sort of sense whatsoever. He's even, again, talked about, like I said, on the, the documentary series, Cultastic. He talked about, like, every day there was literally a different person directing it because they just kind of threw people into the directing chair since it was so impromptu. So you had people like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola and Roger Corman directed a day. And uh, Jack Nicholson even said one morning, apparently there's a story where they got to set and there was no one set to direct. And Jack's like, hey, everyone else in the world has literally directed this movie. Can I direct today? And Roger Corman's like, okay. <laughs> Right, and that shows in the films being a complete and utter mess, does it? Yeah, because when you have, you know, six different, you know, six, seven different people come in to direct six, seven different parts of the movie, obviously it's going to be a mess. Uh, The funny thing is Roger was talking about the critical reviews for that movie, and he said there was at least one or two critics that thought that the different like art direction and different way each part was filmed was supposed to be like intentional that it was an artistic choice because uh jack nicholson's character was kind of going uh, crazy over the course of that movie and of course roger corman was pleased because that was completely unintentional <laughs> brilliant brilliant but and then he used that footage again when he made targets peter bogdanovich's first film i haven't seen it but i think he did mention that in the conversation that he reused footage and I think he said, like, nobody noticed or something. He said that a couple different times where he's reused footage, and luckily uh, the, the people watching hadn't noticed. With Targets, it's all about a tribute being paid to an old horror star. It's one of Boris Karloff's last films. It's being shown at this drive-in. Meanwhile, a uh, serial killer, a sniper, has just gone out shooting people, and he ends up in this drive-in. So you've got the, the two things of the artificial horror of the film on screen to the real horror of a uh, man going <laughs> mad with a gun. And yeah, and, and Karloff is in the middle of all, all of this for, for this tribute, but it's a great film. So I definitely need to get around to watching that. Yeah. You'll love it. But I mean, if you haven't seen the Poe films and particularly with you and your sister's love of Vincent Price, you are in for a treat. Fall of the house of the Usher, pit in the pendulum, the Raven, Mask of Red Death, the cinematographer of which was uh, Nicholas Rogue, that they are just tremendous films. You'll love them. Definitely. I just got to gotta look into where they're exactly streaming around here because, like I said, I think I assume we'd have to, to pay to rent them here because, like I said, I'm not sure what uh, major studio still owns the rights to those. In the same period, I, I marked this one down for special in Phase 2. It's nothing connected with Poe, but you've got Ray Milland in X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Ever ch- had a chance to see that one? I have not just yet. I I remember I saw it, it was streaming on uh, the Roku channel recently, again, another free platform to watch stuff. But um, I, that's one of the ones that's on my list, definitely. I want to watch that one. Uh, the funny thing is during this entire 13-part uh, documentary series of watching, uh, that poster is sitting behind him the entire time. Ah, right. Whereas all the others are Poe, this is very much Lovecraft, but brought more up to date. Uh, when you see it, we'll talk about the ending. There are rumours that there was another ending that was cut because it was deemed too scary. But I won't spoil that for you until you've seen it. Wow. <laughs> Too scary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when I first read it, I thought, that's brilliant. Why didn't they do that? Okay. So we've spoken about him and the films he's made. 
but he's helped so many careers, and I bet that must have been mentioned throughout in that documentary series. Oh, most definitely. There's definitely, I guess, a lot of little stories that he uh, finds his way of telling. Like uh, at one point, I think the movie was called Brain Dead is Brain something. It was from the early 90s. Um, and him and Julie were talking about how they had this uh, carpenter working at their house and he was like helping like rebuild the deck. And he was talking about how he would love to be an actor and he would love to be in movies. And Roger and Julie liked him so much that they said, yeah, why not? Let's give you a shot. We'll put you in this horror movie we're working on why not we'll give you a shot maybe you'll actually be good and it turns out that the carpenter working on their deck was bill paxton wow way oh brilliant went on to be a direct not only a great actor but a good director as well did he direct frailty i think it was a film he directed which i think it's a great little movie some of these directors i looked at coppola scorsese demi cameron i mean amazing Exactly. And it's funny that like he was the only one willing to, to give them a shot. And I mean, not just male directors, he even mentions at one point, like he didn't care whether they were a man or a woman, like he was willing to give them a shot at directing. He was willing to give women a shot in any uh, department. I mean, if you look at like the Slumber Party Massacre trilogy that he did in the 80s, like every single one of those movies is written and directed by a woman. He didn't care. He just wanted the best person for the job. Sometimes, you know, that person ended up being, you know, a really big person. Like uh, Julie Corwin mentions they did like this Bonnie and Clyde movie in the 1970s. And uh, the person who did the music for them ended up turning out to uh, write the score for James Cameron's Titanic. Oh, yeah. James Horner. Wow. Yeah. Was the Bonnie and Clyde one, was that the one with William Shatner in it? Uh, Big Bad Mama. Maybe I again. There was a whole episode where they did all of them like that, so they might be blending together. So I'm not sure. I know they did one called like Woman in the Red Dress, and yeah, a couple different ones uh, with the name Mama in them. But I can't remember exactly which one it was because, like I said, it was like an hour long episode, and they just covered all of them. So I know definitely one of them had the person who did the score for Titanic. Yeah, and and Horner did the music for Battle Beyond the Stars which was, uh, you know, his attempt, at, if you like, blending Star Wars with the Magnificent Seven. Exactly. Yeah, they were talking about that. He mentioned, yeah, the Magnificent Seven and how he was trying to kind of do a fun, you know, cowboy space movie with that one. I can't remember which one of the sci-fi movies he was talking about. It might have been like War of the Satellites or one of the earlier ones where he was talking about that the special effects company they hired was dragging their feet. And so he had to go down there to talk to them. And it turns out that the guy in charge actually hadn't done as much as he said he did. Um, He didn't really have as much experience as he had claimed. But it turns out that there was this young guy they had just hired to the special effects company. And he was actually really good. So Roger ended up making him head of special effects on that movie. And it turns out that was a, a very young James Cameron. So the guy seems to be a, one of these people who can pull good people to him, you know, the sort of Andy Warhol. Yeah, Walt Disney. Of, Walt Disney and yeah. the B-films. Yeah. Pulling all these... Because Disney wasn't that talented in himself, no. but he knew the people to pull together. Steve Jobs, another one. Yeah. C- couldn't program them, couldn't build anything, but knew how to get people to work. Yeah. But it is, you know, I mean, again, you were saying, deal about some of these, you know, the best person for the job. I mean, to think back that Jonathan Demme, who won the Oscar for Silence of the Lambs, went on to make Philadelphia after that. 
directed a female prison movie with loads of lesbian sequences, Caged Heat. I remember it. In what year? 74, I think. I've been pretty radical for 74. Am I right on that? Again, there were several movies in that. Like I said, there was even like a women in prison episode that they did. So there was like Cage Heat and the Big Doll House and all those uh, types of movies. So yeah, I know he directed one of them. Like I said, they just kind of uh, uh, blend together. Because like I said, these are like hour-long episodes. And so you're like, okay, there's another woman in prison movie. There's another woman in prison movie. Especially in that time in the 70s, he ended up doing a lot of those in the Philippines because he had made friends with a guy who wanted to be a director. I can't remember his name at the moment. I apologize. But he ended up like shipping cast and crew over there to the Philippines. And they ended up being able to uh, make a lot of movies out there because they got some sort of like tax break from the country or tax credit. And people didn't even know the difference. There was even one movie, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there was one movie that was supposed to be set in Northern California. And uh, they filmed it out in the Philippines because he said, no one's going to know the difference. Like Philip, this part of the Philippines in Northern California looks similar. And uh, Roger Corman was like, okay, we can try it. And he said that uh, not a single critic who reviewed that particular film could tell that they did not film it in Northern California. <laughs> and. And yet another side of this guy is he was the person who introduced a lot of the films of people like Kurosawa over into mainstream American audiences. Really? Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. That's why I, at this point in time, I don't almost don't want to, like a lot of people want to call him like the, the king of B-movies and run, whatnot. And uh, Corman has been on record for kind of resenting that statement because he really did make all kinds of films and he distributed a lot of films. He distributed yeah, a lot of art house films, a lot of foreign films, different types of movies that, you know, went on to be nominated for, or, you know, win Oscars and, you know, be uh, revered by American audiences. And people just didn't realize that he was the one bringing these movies to America because he did really have a, a lot of respect and love for these different uh, foreign filmmakers. As again, I started going into the cinema in the mid seventies and there, and this was in this appreciation for Corman was coming through. And I said, there's a lot of documentaries on the BBC. I don't know if they're available. They might be on YouTube. They're worth tracking down as well. And there were some really good ones. But without Roger Corman, cinema today would be very different because without films like The Wild Angels and The Trip, there would be no Easy Rider. Time for me to tell. We'll have to cut this out. My Wild, Wild Angel, Angel story, story again. Yes. Have, I, have I told this story to you before, Hadil? I don't think so. All right. So so back when I was um, 16, 17, so I lived in a place called Pontypridd in South Wales, and Cardiff was about 10 miles away, which is the capital city. What a group of us used to do on a Saturday night is we'd drive down to Cardiff and we'd go for the late night double bill in the cinema. And one of my friends was a real horror nut, really knew his stuff. And uh, he said, oh, we've got to go this week. They're showing Frogs, the Ray Milan film from 1972. Oh. He said, we've got to go see it. We've got to go see it. So we went down to watch this film, and it was always a double bill. We didn't pay any attention to what the other film was because it wasn't horror. It was The Wild Angels, which had been banned in Britain for five, six years, and then had got a certificate, and it was out. So we sat in the cinema. The next three rows in front of us were all Hell's Angels. (laughs) And I'm thinking, we're dead. We're absolutely (laughs) dead. We're not getting out of here alive. And... As it turned out, it was one of the best audiences for in a cinema I've ever had. They were totally respectful, they, the whole thing. It all fell apart when we were leaving the cinema at about three in the morning. Somebody had called the police because they said, oh, it's all these Hells Angels in here. We think there's going to be trouble. 
And as we walked out, we had to walk down a whole line of police and they were just watching everybody. And it sort of kicked off when one of the Hells Angels got on his bike, decided to storm past the police and tried to do a wheelie and his bike flipped over on him. They <laughs> oh descended God. on him and kicked their crap out of him. This is the <laughs> oh 70s. You, yeah, yeah, this was legal to do that then, uh, apparently. The police uh, had those powers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We made a very swift exit. But yeah, so I have seen the Wild Angels, but I didn't expect to. But Frogs was quite good. So you watched the film and had a show afterwards. Yeah, yeah. and a show after, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that was my experience of uh, the Wild Angels. But I've never seen the trip. They ban it, then they release it for a little bit in Britain, then they ban it again, because it's all about taking LSD. Like you like were saying, definitely Roger Corman was very uh, revolutionary with those kind of, you know, biker movies that he did, because he did a few of them um, at that time, because he, he talked about in the uh, the documentary series that uh, he was tired of uh, shooting movies on studio sets. He wanted to really go out there and, you know, shoot in the real world. And this was his, uh, you know, the, his reason to, to shoot these biker movies, because he you know, he just thought it looked better overall, and it definitely adds more production value when you're really out, you know, in the desert, and unlike, you know, being in a, in a studio. And, I mean, I think that's definitely revolutionary because when you look at a lot of those new Hollywood movies that touted nowadays, you know, in the 1970s, and they, they were really shot on location, um, unlike the previous era, which were mainly studio sets. I mean, obviously, Roger Corman was the one that spearheaded that before a lot of those big studios really caught on to that and started doing that themselves. And he also forged a strong friendship with Peter Fonda as well, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think they, they were friends in that era. Yeah, because the, not only Wild Angels on the trip, but I, I see that uh, he was executive producer on Fighting Mad, which is a revenge film that Fonda made in the about 76, 77 period. So he was a guerrilla filmmaker before guerrilla filmmakers even existed, yeah? Yeah, I, I, I would say. But he was always ahead of the curve. And I remember when Rollerball came out in 75, this film had been made. It's this big budget film about sport and the future and yep. how it's taken over. So what does Corman do? He goes out and has Death Race 2000 made. Yes. And, and it's subverted and it was acclaimed as the far better film. Yeah. And it always seemed to me that Roger Corman, certainly at this period, he had much more of a home in Britain than he did in America. I think the British took him more to their hearts and understood the all-round nature of him than the Americans did. And I'd be interested in that documentary series if he ever mentions that. Um, I don't know if he does, because like I said, it's not like uh, Corman's World, which was a documentary movie that came out a number of years ago, where it was like him plus everybody he had influenced, like they had interviewed like Jack Nicholson and stuff for that one. Uh, this one is particularly just from his point of view and his wife's point of view so uh it's mainly just they, they talk about the movies themselves he doesn't really talk about uh you know reaction or relevance in any particular country necessarily um just because like i said it, it, he wasn't always you know going to these places like after you know the movies were made or distributed and whatnot like anytime he was not working on a movie he was working on a you know three different movies like he was he was just constantly busy with this so i don't know if at that time he could really kind of sit back and kind of think about uh you know relevance in different countries so i'm gonna throw you a bit of a curveball now my friend if somebody said to you roger corman what film should i watch what would be your top three to pick Definitely, I think I would start anybody in 
the fifties era. Cause that's my personal favorite when he was personally directing a lot of these movies before he started new world pictures. Cause in the seventies, obviously he had started new world pictures. He had basically just become a producer and he was uh, hiring other people to direct. So in order to see his influence, I definitely picked machine gun Kelly with Charles Bronson and Susan Cabot, who was really great. Uh, I've been talking about her a lot because she was in several movies with another actress. And I would honestly love to see like a mini series about the two of them because they were both really good actresses and they both died really uh, tragically young a couple decades later. So definitely Machine Gun Kelly would be one of them. Uh, like I said, A Bucket of Blood would be another one because like I said, it, it kind of shows the influence that movie still has on movies, like I said, like kind of Joker or even something like Taxi Driver a couple decades later of that kind of loner character who you know wants to be something more but is kind of held back by the way you know society is structured and how they're viewed in the world and then for the third one i almost want to pick something silly like wasp woman just because that's uh, <laughs> yep another Susan Cabot film uh, where she, I'm going to mispronounce her name, I apologize, uh, Barbara Morris, who is also in A Bucket of Blood, and uh, Machine Gun Kelly with her. Uh, they're, they're in all three movies together that I mentioned. They had only done a few movies for Corman. Uh, and they're both just such good actresses in in their own way. Like They both have different strengths to them. Obviously, Susan Cabot in all three films is uh, very sassy and doesn't take anything from you know anybody and she's just really good. She's really good in Wasp Woman. She's really good in Machine Gun Kelly. She's great in Sorority Girl. This is, if you don't like horror, I would go with Sorority Girl because I really do like 50s, you know, melodramas. So if you want to skip the horror ones, you don't like those. That one, that's an hour-long one where she is a really terrible uh, human being. She's in a, a sorority, of course, and none of the other girls like her. And the funny thing is she spends the majority of the movie like, why does nobody like me? But at the same time, she, you know, blackmails the other girls and hits the other girls and, you know, says horrible things to them. And she's just kind of wondering the whole time why nobody likes her. And I I find that amusing. If I was to pick three, I would go for The Raven. I love the the balance of comedy and horror on that. St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which I think is just a tremendous fun film. Have you seen that one, Adil? I don't think I have, no. Uh, well, we're, we're trying to. And I'm going to pick a film that didn't get a lot of love for it when it came out, but I, I think it's worth seeing, is Roger Corman's Frankenstein Unbound, based on the Brian Aldiss novel. That would be in your field there, Graham. It's a, a great, uh, bizarre time travel. Sorry, I missed that because I was looking at Susan Cabot. God, she's a pretty woman. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and she died in her 50s. Another one who died very young. Well, that's thrown me completely now. They're no, sorry, Frankenstein sorry. Unbound. But yeah. <laughs> Frankenstein Unbound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. You're back with us now. Yeah, I'm right? back with you. That's sorry. Good. She's a bit distracting. Yeah. Oh, she is, isn't she? <laughs> Thank you. Now we've got. I'm now stuck in a room with two old perfs. <laughs> <laughs> She's got all her clothes on. What's wrong with you? See you, mate. So let's sum this up before we go and talk about something else. How would you sum up his legacy, Adil? Obviously, he doesn't, and I wouldn't want him to be just thought of as a guy who made a lot of B-movies. I mean, obviously, he made B-movies. I'm not going to pretend like he didn't. But like I said, he after especially watching this uh, documentary series, which I hope you all uh, get the chance to soon, like I said, Tubi TV should be 
over there sometime. They said they were going to go to the UK sometime in the spring. Um, and I hope so because they, they really do have a lot of stuff that like Netflix and, you know, a lot of the other services don't care about carrying. But definitely he, he, he made such a, a wide amount of films, you know, women in prison movies and biker movies. And then he made you dramas and these crazy family movies like that, that dirt bike kid or whatever. Like that was a weird Jack and the Beanstalk type film where this you know the kid from a christmas story buys like a dirt bike and it flies just weird stuff like that but i don't necessarily think like saying everything he made was a b movie is accurate to his career because like i said he even distributed you know foreign films that went on to be nominated for oscars and whatnot but definitely he is a man of many talents and he you know knows how to stretch a budget and I hope he can be seen as the kind of revolutionary filmmaker that he was the revolutionary producer who would you know make movies about any subject and he would have you know people of color and women you know direct without any thought behind it and um, I think he deserves better than he has now because obviously he's you know 93 going on 94 he even said there was like an article recently where he was interviewed and said he had no plans of retiring anytime soon. But, you know, the last decade, he's really just been making, like, movies for the sci-fi channel and whatnot. And I definitely think he uh, he deserves better than that. I, I would really hope that there would be a studio, even, like, a small one, that would, you know, think to, you know, hopefully give him money to make, you know, something theatrical. Because I, I would be there in a heartbeat if he put it in a, their uh, theatrical film. You're right. And as we said earlier, you know, this guy changed cinema. Without him, there'd be no easy rider. The model, and I know now the name is tainted, but the model that Miramax put together, again, bears reference to some of the things that Roger Corman was doing and bringing in top-quality filmmakers, getting films distributed that wouldn't ever have got distribution otherwise. He's up there with the greats. There's no doubt doubt about it. That's fascinating. I'm I'm really embarrassed to say I thought he was a B-movie guy. You know, I didn't realize there was all of that other stuff that he's done, you know, and Jeff and I were talking about this over the last few days and I was going, what? He did what? I didn't. And then you read more and more and I scanned his entire Wikipedia article and I thought, this this guy is amazing and nobody's heard of him. I wish he'd been born much later because I think he'd have been a tour de force these days. It'd have been great during the, starting in the 60s, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah or maybe, been, this, maybe the, se- or the 70s, 70s or maybe. 80s. Yeah, 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 good point. But but he, he had an influence on those decades. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to watch some of gonna, these yeah. films. I've, because I've, I've watched a load of his films by accident. Oh, possibly, you know, yes, you know. indeed. And yeah. then I thought, and now when I think back, I think, well, that was a really good film. I'd need to go back and watch that again, yeah. So thank you, Hadil. Yes, an, thank you for bringing that to our attention. There's another million films that I need yeah. to put on my list. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that is, you know, praise to you, because what you're doing yeah. with Pulp Serial is you're bringing this work to people's attention. And as I always say, it's really, really important. So what's the latest with Pulp Serial? What's going on? And what are you bringing out for people? Um, I mean, definitely, like I said, this podcast might be a little dated in like six months, but uh, as we're recording this in March right now, I'm definitely going to have to hold back on a few things at the moment just because uh, I have to go down to like a co-working place, you know, down to the office to do this stuff. And with this whole kind of virus scare right now, it's going to make it a little harder to do that because I have to ride the bus to get there. 
because uh, the actual office itself is, you know, pretty self-contained. But, uh, you know, having to ride the bus is a whole different story at this moment in time. Yeah. Uh, just because, you know, they're not clean, if we're going to be honest. At the moment, yeah, I've been doing, you know, Pulparama every week. If you don't know what that is out there on YouTube every Saturday morning, um, I put out a new show. It used to be live, but now it's just on demand. So it has a, a movie trailer and a cartoon and a movie serial chapter. And that's like a fun thing people have been enjoying. I put that out every week. I've been doing, like I said, my podcast, which I also have on SoundCloud and YouTube. So, I mean, I'll be able to record that one, but it might take a backseat at the moment. We might get backlogged on that. I'm just, you know, looking for other ways in order to, of course, they, you know, expand uh, what I've been doing. I've been trying to, you know, do more clips and things and fun stuff and put more trailers on Twitter, of course, because that's just, uh, you know, the easiest place to for people to get to because not everyone always wants to, you know, click on links and leave the app and stuff. So I've been trying to uh, share some more trailers and things over there. Uh, just overall, like I said, we just got to take it one day at a time right now. Uh, definitely trying to get more, you know, interviews and stuff for the podcast, which is pretty easy because obviously people can do it over Skype, you know, everyone can stay in their homes at the moment. So, um, you know, hopefully by summertime, everything will be back to normal. And, you know, I can just kind of ramp things up from here and uh, try to put out more stuff together. Excellent. So what have you seen recently you think that's really impressive? I'd like to bring that to a wider audience. Oh, gosh. Um, Obviously, I've been talking about this on Twitter a lot. The assistant with Julia Garner is one of the best movies of the year so far. Obviously, I know it's a limited release. Not everyone's been able to see it, but it's a it's a really fantastic independent film put out by Bleecker Street, starring, like I said, Julia Garner, who is uh, an amazing actress. You might know her from the Netflix series Ozark with Jason Bateman, uh, which she won an Emmy for last year and very well deserved. It's about a young girl who works for a smaller kind of distribution film company who's run by a kind of Harvey Weinstein type of guy. But the, the great thing about this movie, it never tells you that blatantly. You have to figure it out. It never holds your hand. It never explains things to you. It makes you figure it out over uh, the course of her, her day. I mean, and they never even show you anything explicit. Like you, you have to, as the viewer, understand and figure out what's going on. And of course, you know, have sympathy for women who have to work in the film industry that we, we don't really talk about, you know, even something as simple as an assistant who does long hours. She's literally there when it's dark and she leaves when it's dark because she's there for, you know, 10, 12 hours every day uh, doing things for other people, making sure things happen. And, you know, people like us can sit at home and just watch the content and never think about it. I, I think that's a really phenomenal film so far this year. Oh, I've seen the trailer. The trailer looks very, very good. Yeah. Okay. I have to check that out. Yeah. After I'm missing so much as you have yet to see Parasite. I'm the only person on this uh, podcast who hasn't seen it yet. Not that we don't mention it to you no. like seven or eight times. <laughs> no. You've seen it a number of times now, and you, deal. I went again on my birthday because my little brother had never heard of it because he, he plays video games. He really doesn't watch movies at all. And so, because we're like complete opposites, him and I. And so it was my birthday. We were at breakfast. I always go to a movie on my birthday. They were like, what do you want to watch? And I said, Parasite's still playing down the street. And he was like, what's that? And I was like, oh, you're going to love it. And my sister who had seen it already was like, you're going to love it. And so we didn't tell him anything going in. We, he didn't see the poster. He didn't see a trailer. He didn't see anything. And um, he ended up really liking it. And when we left the theater, I said, what did you think it was going to be about? 
He's like, you told me it was just called Parasite, so I assumed it was going to be like a sci-fi monster movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you say that, there was a film called Parasite in the early 80s starring Demi Moore. Yes. There we go. Yeah. But no, I haven't seen it. I, I am going to see it. Uh, I imagine come the end of this week, cinemas will be shut in this country. There's nothing being released for months on end anywhere. And the figures for the first three months are terrible, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I've just been looking at, before we started recording the show, the figures in America for the weekend, and it's 85% down on what it was this time last year. So uh, it's pretty Yikes. bad. Mind you, they have put Bloodshot out there with Vin Diesel, so you get what you yeah, pay yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's no okay. films. So final question. How's the Patreon going? Good. Like I said, I'm um, trying to output stuff there every week. That's the only thing I think won't slow down at the moment. On my dollar tier, obviously, I just do like a, a blog post every Saturday uh, with a recommendation of something kind of smaller you might have not heard about. Lately, I've been doing lists. Uh, the last few weeks uh, for Tubi TV because like I said that's a streaming service I really like but I feel like a lot of people um, disregard as you know just oh they just have B movies on there but they, they really don't they do have like Oscar winners on there like at one point they had The Departed on there and Spotlight and right now they have like Terms of Endearment on there and stuff so I was doing lists for that I think that's the tier that's definitely going to get the most content at the moment because the $2 tier is for uh, early access to podcasts. And like I said, at the moment, I'm not sure what the output is going to be on there. And then I'm working on the other tiers uh, eventually with uh, the video game tier I need to work on. I, I was already testing out the recordings for that. So the, the footage looks good. I just need to sit down and do it and then be able to get to the office to upload, you know, those uh, high, the big file sizes um, for those videos. And then, um, yeah, my sister and I still need to plan together another commentary to do, uh, which might be a little easier right now since we're both, you know, having our hours cut. So we'll, we'll see. Maybe we'll be able to record uh, shortly. Yeah, I, I do like your dollar one. I, I've been meaning to sign up to that. I promise I will because um, I like the sound of what you deliver for oh, that. Yep. That's definite. So there we go. That's a Welsh promise. Unbreakable. <laughs> Unbreakable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Adil, thank you very much. Is there anything else you want to say? Any any links you want to give out on the air before we finish? Uh, mainly, like I said, uh, twitter.com slash Pulp Serial, YouTube, Pulp Serial, uh, SoundCloud, Patreon, all the same thing. Uh, definitely anyone out there listening, if you haven't seen the newest Jumanji movie from a couple months ago, I highly recommend it. I thought that was fantastic. Um, I still, again, I'm touting the Dora movie from last year. That was fantastic. Film as well. Um, I really hope that I get to see Jungle Cruise in July. I don't want that pushback again. So hopefully uh, by this, you know, by July, everything will be okay. And I can go see Jungle Cruise because that's my most anticipated movie of the year. Have you seen those wonderful posters that Emily Blunt and Dwayne Johnson have put out, each one obscuring the other? <laughs> Yeah, those, those are really cute. I definitely, again, there's a, definitely a couple posters for that movie I already uh, wish I could own. So hopefully those will be available uh, come the time when the movie comes out. Adil, it's been a real pleasure as always. And uh, I'm sure we'll find another topic to talk about in the months to come. Thank you, Adil. Yeah. Great fun. Thank you. Thank you. To 
make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.